Yeah, one day at a time. What's up, everybody? We're live. How's it going? How's everybody doing today? Welcome to the Great Debate. That song was actually from uh, one of our own guests, Jason DeMooney, who I will uh, introduce in a few minutes. For those joining the Great Debate for the first time, what makes this debate special? Jason and Tarek are two guests. They're not going to be fighting with one another. Well, they might fight a little bit, but the goal here is not for Jason and Tarek to defeat one another. Rather, it's for Jason and Tarek to reach common ground on the most important issues we face. That's what makes this debate great. It's not about fighting. It's about working together and reaching common ground. So welcome, everybody, to the great debate. This is the first debate where we've brought on two Palestinians. Without further ado, I'm very happy to introduce to my bottom right, Jason DeMooney, who is a Christian Palestinian currently residing in Australia. He started his company, Trivium Energy what is that? PTY Limited? Jason, you can't be yeah. putting words like that in the in your bio. <laughs> he has 14 and has been working as a young entrepreneur in the renewable energy sector in Australia, Maldives, and Saudi Arabia. In his free time, he advocates for a peaceful resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And Tarek Al-Mutaseb is an Australian-Palestinian entrepreneur with a focus on protecting the traditions and rights of Palestinians through advocacy and trade facilitation. His family is split between the cities of Jerusalem and Hebron. Welcome, guys. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank Thanks you very much. So let's get started. I mean, <clears throat> you are both Palestinian and you're both living in Australia. So just so we don't confuse the audience, uh, you know, let's start by explaining what is your Palestinian identity and how come you guys both have Australian accents? Tarek, would you like to go first? Well, <clears throat> I think with the Palestinian identity part, it kind of is a tough one here in Australia because Australia is such, it is, it is largely an Anglo country, but it is very, it encourages multiculturalism quite a lot. So you're kind of balancing between the two. You love Australia, you love everything about it, but at the same time, you don't have a long history here and get it and how your family got here is a cert. It makes you think quite a lot. And so in regards to the Palestinian connection, the Palestinian identity part, I would say it's a mixture of obviously being like my family coming from there, the issues that happen, the fam the familial connections, a bit of a religious aspect as well, and then the traditional aspect. So what makes me different from other Australians is the fact that I have more than a thousand family members, is the fact that I'll have phone calls out the blue saying something happened to this person, we'll have to send money. No Australian goes through that. They probably talk to their family on a Christmas day, like the average Australian. And so that connects me back there. And so what makes me different from the rest of Australians is kind of my Palestinian identity from that. Great. And and you've spent a fair amount of time uh, in Palestine and Israel, correct? Yeah. Um, I lived in where the Jaws, it's in the eastern parts of Jerusalem. Uh, my family thought there was going to be peace after Oslo. They thought it was going to be all well good. So even though I was born in Australia, my dad was encouraged. He said, you know, let's move back to Jerusalem. It's going to be a great time for business, great time for everyone to living together. 
And then everyone, well, not everyone, but I assume most people watching know what happened in the late 90s, 2000, 2001 with the second intifada. My family decided Australia was a better place to raise a family. But I still go back as often as possible and maintain good relations with all the family there. Great. Thank you for sharing that, uh, Tarek. Uh, Jason, what's up? So uh, as, as for me, I mean, what connects me to there, I mean, my uh, family name, Damuni, comes from a town called Al-Damun. Um, so that's the etymology of my name, which um, uh, is uh, is one of the main uh, things, um, as well as the sort of culture, the family values that you're sort of brought up with. Um, for me, I guess, uh, my grandparents left in 47. Um, they were originally from Haifa. Uh, they made it to Lebanon. Um, my father made it to the United States. My mom made it to Australia. They met at a wedding in Canada, and and uh, after I was born, they decided Australia was uh, a better place for um, to raise a family. Um, however, we have uh, family that's uh, that's in the Middle East and and um, in the region. So um, there is um, there are multiple levels of connections, and I sent and um, I guess the the history of it, learning through it. Um, helps develop that connection to the land as you grow older. And I'm sure, I guess, Tarek would probably experience the same. Great. Thank you for sharing. Um, before we dive deeper, uh, you know, to, to our guests here watching, thank you for joining. Feel free to have a lively discussion in the chat. Uh, feel free to ask questions. We will get to audience questions at the end. If you like what you see, smash that like button. If you don't like what you see, smash that dislike button. We're cool with that too. So, I think one distinction, one clear distinction, right, external distinction between you both is, Tarek, you are Muslim, and Jason, you are Christian. How do you see that as affecting your Palestinian identity, if at all? I mean, as as far as uh, to my understanding, I think um, since uh, the year 627, or the truce between Sophronius and Omar bin Khattab, um, Christians and Muslims have had a relatively good uh, history with one another. Um, and um, in terms of how, I guess, we would have different sort of uh, cultures, ceremonies, traditions growing up. Um, but I guess there is something which, um, which binds us. There's certain, there is like a sense of respect, you know what I mean, um, that is taught towards you know, Palestinians from the other religions. Cool. Um, yeah. Uh, I'll just add that there is, I can't obviously, contrary to popular belief in the Middle East, it's a weird thing where some groups are monoliths, some not so much. So I would say that while there is differences between, you know, maybe the Muslims in Ramallah and the Muslims in Hebron or the Muslims in Gaza, there is slight differences. Some tend to practice more, some are more secular. But the way it impacts, the one thing is, I guess, because the Israelis are here, our differences between the Muslims and Christians are kind of overlooked. Like if the Israelis weren't here, who knows what would happen. But because there is this other, it kind of, it allows everyone to focus on the Israelis. And so it's a weird thing where even though conflict could happen, it's kind of, they put everything aside because they're like, okay, we have to deal with what this other group here who is more foreign than, say, each other at the moment. 
And so, yeah, we kind of see each other as similar, the same. And yeah, that's essentially in regards to the Muslim part, I'd say it impacts my the way being Palestinian compared to a Christian, just from my perspective, seeing Christians in Bethlehem, Jerusalem, et cetera, is um, I'm sure it's the same where Adar's experience is Christians tend to be quite well educated in the region among Israelis and Palestinians. I think among even um, Arab Israelis or Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, Christians are the are actually more educated than Jews and Muslims in the region. I could be wrong, but I'm quite certain that's the case. And so because they tend to be quite well educated, they tend to be middle class, I'd say more liberal minded, while a lot of the time, especially in refugee camps and also in Hebron, especially Pal the Palestinian Muslims tend to be more socially conservative and more very much so more traditional. Yeah, so th that's interesting to, to look at it that way. You know, it seems like in the eyes of, let's say government policy, right? A Christian Palestinian and a Muslim Palestinian both need to wait at a checkpoint. This, in a sense, unifies them as one people. But when you yeah. when you then take a step back, we could see a set of differences. And I wonder if Christian faith and Muslim faith and whatever culture comes with that, you know, play some role which which impacts not only worldview but also approach to solving the conflict, right? What is the right approach? And I, I think, you know, we, we discussed this briefly. It seems there is a small difference in opinion in, in how you guys see um, what you guys would like to see as the solution of this conflict. So I, I would like to talk about that and further explore that. It perhaps does not tie into religion directly, but, you know, it'd be interesting to explore. So whoever wants to go first, you know, I, I'd love to hear how you think, um, we move forward from here and what solution you'd like to see to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Uh, talk, talk, would you like to go first again? You guys are too polite. You gotta, you see, <laughs> yeah, um, that's your, that's your Australian side right there. Yeah, we haven't been, it's been too long. I've, when I go back to the Middle East, don't worry, I'll start cutting off Jason and causing trouble yeah. and stuff and <laughs> stress. But uh, in regards to my solution, ideally, obviously, I would I believe in the Palestinian right to self-determination, but I just don't see it happening. Whether it's the annexation, which which the halted annexation of parts of Area C, I believe that will happen in the future. And I think it's a gradual process. I think essentially Israel controls the West Bank anyway. It controls the border, it controls the airspace. And so as far as I'm concerned, <clears throat> since Israelis control all the West Bank, how do we manage that? Do we all get citizenship? Which we know that that will lead to a whole number of issues. But how do we improve the people's lives there? And so for me, while I definitely believe in Palestinian self-determination, I'm too cynical or too realistic maybe. And so I want us to have autonomy. I would like us to have, you know, freedom of movement, right to work. Well, I think Jason is still in favor of, or still hopeful that a state will actually arise. I believe in Palestinian right to self-determination. I just don't think it's gonna happen. I don't think, I think the Palestinian Authority and Netanyahu's current government are very comfortable with the status quo. And I think this gradual annexation of land is gonna happen. And so how do we improve people's lives? And I don't think a state which will be demilitarized, it won't have access to its own borders or control of its water resources is a real state almost. So if we're not gonna go give them a proper state, well then might as well just have autonomy and which can, I, in my opinion, will improve the lives a lot faster than a mini cut up state. Right. So j just to, you know, clarify that essentially it would be a one state solution, but where Palestinians have 
full equal rights and also have autonomy over their their neighborhoods and communities? I, I think that would be an ideal situation for both groups because talking to Israelis, the one thing that they're very adamant about is security and the fear of demographic change. They're afraid that if, if Palestinians are given citizenship, they'll vote out the prime minister, they'll put in their own person, Israel will no longer become a Jewish state. So that's they're not going to let, that's like a red line for them. Well, for us, it looks like we're stuck here. We need our lives. We need our lives to improve. People actually don't know. They see, you know, videos of Ramallah. They see some rich Palestinians. They see some mansions if they live in the West Bank. And they assume, okay, there's some suffering, but it's actually not that bad. They don't know that even middle-class Palestinians, ridiculous amounts of them are in debt to loan sharks. They don't know that Palestinian civil servants are sometimes not paid for six months at a time. They don't know that even educated Palestinians are leaving the country as fast as possible because there's just no opportunities. Now, will a state solve those problems? I believe we have a right to a state, but I just don't think it's going to happen. And I don't see the Palestinian Authority or the Israelis solving those problems. And so ideally a federal system where we are maybe given cantons or given our own area where we we're able to manage our own affairs and then have obviously maybe a neutral party or an ombudsman in each area to ensure no one's human rights are violated. I don't have the perfect solution, but I think it's a solution which will keep Israelis calm and improve Palestinians' lives as soon as possible. While a state, whether it's a Trump plan or another plan, I'm sure you know someone who was alive during Oslo, all these plans start off with, okay, we'll have a five-year process where we do something over five, six years, and then we'll move forward. But people's lives aren't, like, people are struggling here and now. People are in debt here and now. And Corona's obviously just impacted that even more. Mm-hmm. And people are poor when people don't have opportunities. Well, then they listen to more radical people. And so I want to improve people's lives now. And I don't see the Israelis allowing us to have a state. And I don't see a state really improving everyone's lives right now. And so I am in favor of a federal system or maybe a canton system. Thanks for sharing. I, I think that like what we can what we can definitely both agree on is that the status quo is not ideal. Um, and it and, and it can't continue on like this um, forever. Um, so like you said, like whether it will be through a Canton system or a Trump plan or something else, uh, something has to change inevitably. Um, I think that Palestinians have a very distinct sense of pride um, with their national identity. Um, so not too sure about the whole tribal regional um, attachment thing, uh, which probably would be reinforced under a, ca- a Canton system. Um, uh, but what I think is what, what, what I'd like to see anyway, and um, in order for us to have a state, there first needs to be um, uh, uh, a, uh, a, I don't know, like a restoration of Palestinian con- consciousness. You know, uh, Palestinian consciousness needs to um, exceed a certain point um, in order to to to, to refine um, a. Uh, a unified uh, national identity which is based on uh, reconciliation and coexistence in order for the purpose of improving everybody's lives um, that are there. Um, I mean, and and the ways forward, how I see this happening um, is uh, by smaller movements uh, or things like this to start the narrative or start the dialogue happening um, so that we can together build a better narrative. And that has to happen between uh, amongst Palestinians like me and Tarek 
um, and amongst Jews like yourself, Adar. And I think the three of us here representing the major demographics of the region is, is a perfect example of, of what needs to be done to start showing people, one, that, hey, look, here's three people, um, one Jew, one Christian, one Muslim, that are talking to each other now, would love to coexist um, together and build something that will make us all you know, prosperous in multiple levels. Um, and um, I think it's something which people need to see um, so that it can counter uh, the, the um, radical uh, images or ideologies that are floating out there. So. Great. I'm, I'm with you on that. And I, I think it's a topic I'd like to stick on stick on for a while reconciliation and you know what what needs to be done i think that's actually where there's not enough conversation happening a lot of the conversation seems to be surrounded around blame whose fault it is who's doing what not about how do we unify populations and move forward uh Tarek, you brought up an interesting point about you know this is people's lives five years people don't want to wait five years and individual suffering, five years seems like a very long time. I think this is one of the greatest challenges in activism that sometimes change might just not be possible in a few years, right? It might take a generation or two generations. Now, it's easy for me to say and accept this because I'm not suffering daily from the situation I'm in. I could understand why a Palestinian or let's say a, a black person in the United States might not feel like they have patience to wait a generation. It seems like we have a challenge because while the lack of patience is certainly understood, that doesn't mean that there's a quick solution. So it's almost like we might need to accept that certain solutions take time and a lack of patience might just hinder our ability to reach our goals. Do, do, do you feel the same way or do you feel differently? I Pardon me. I understand what you're saying is how, you know, in the grand scheme of things, five years is nothing. I mean, if I, if I knew that my, the next generation is going to be fine, I just have to keep doing what I'm doing or relaxing, I would be relieved. But five years under the current situation where it is genuine hopelessness, that's the thing. It's not even, there is no, not even light at the end of the tunnel. As in, as I said before, like I know Palestinian teachers who sometimes go five, six months without pay, and this isn't even wow. good pay. So as in it's and it's one of those things where it's a weird system over there. I mean, you have to deal with Israeli law, um, Israeli military law, and then you have to deal with the Palestinian Authority law, which is all over the place. And then you have to deal with criminals and you have to deal with all these things. And so asking these people to wait five years, if there was actual light at the end of the tunnel, go for it. I just don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And so that's why, for example, I would love, I still, I will never tell a Palestinian, give up on your right to self-determination. Not at all. I'm very much, I believe every group, ethnic group has a right to autonomy or every group of people, they want to identify with a certain area and want to do their thing. Okay, fine. But will it solve the problems? Will a state solve half the problems? A state which really is at the mercy of another state. While if we're a part of that other state, Maybe it'll be nicer to us because talking, I've watched, uh, I saw some of your previous debates and I, I saw them between Antoine Saka and Rabbi Yehuda Hakon. And I watched some of Rabbi Yehuda Hakon's videos and he said that the goal, the reason why a lot of the 
he said Israelis living in the West Bank or settlers as Palestinians refer to them. One of the reasons why they're trying to move into every hilltop is because they want to make it logistically impossible for there to be a two-state solution. They think the land is inseparable from the rest of Israel. They believe that like that is a part of their land. And so they want to move in as much as possible because they, they think that the more of them are there, the harder it is to get them out. Mm. So if we agree and we go, okay, this area is going to be autonomous, maybe the settlements won't be expanding at such a rate. Maybe the Palestinians won't feel like, okay, the settlements are expanding towards our population centers. We have no hope. The economy is in tatters. Well, maybe if we say, okay, look, we're not going to tear the country apart. We're going to have autonomy. We're going to have our own ethnic areas. We'll figure it out. We'll try and improve people's lives straight away. Maybe people will calm down a little bit. Maybe we'll provide some hope at the end of the tunnel. I don't have all the details, but there seems to be examples from Switzerland to Bosnia and Herzegovina to even Moldova. There's all these examples. And so we've seen how other things work out. We can try and apply them here. And I know we're in the Middle East, so it's quite different from those places. You know, those are all European societies, very different from our own. But in the grand scheme of things right now, if we were to leave it, what does it look like that's happening now on the map? I mean, not even five years, even a generation. You have each generation seems to grow up a lot more anti one group than the other. I mean, Israelis who I've met who were born in the 80s tend to be much nicer than Israelis who are teenagers and Israelis who are 20 years old. And it's the same for Palestinians. I mean, our younger Palestinians tend to be more, in my experience, anti-Israel than the older ones, or at least anti-Israeli, the people. Mm-hmm. And that's because the situation gets more and more hopeless. Right. And when, when you're hopeless, you become more tribal. Right. And so that is why I would like a solution to happen, hopefully within a generation. But yep. it's untenable, the situation now. I'm with you. I think that's a very important point to make. And just to reinforce that, uh, a poll done a few years ago showed that something like 7% of Palestinians, and I think it was 20-something percent of Israelis, believe peace will be attained within the next hundred years. I mean, Mm. you know, 7%. So it's despair breeds radicalization. That's, you're exactly right. Despair breeds radicalization. And if we can't provide hope to our populations, we're going to continue to see radicalization. And the more radical our populations are, the harder it will be to attain peace. So I'm with you. The clock is ticking and, and we need to move. We need to act. Uh, Jason, anything you'd like to uh, add here? Yeah, I mean, like, um, um, actually, I mean, like, I fairly agree with pretty much um, um, the same sentiments and stuff. So um, I'm I'm happy to move forward. Otherwise, I'm just going to be reinforcing what has already been said. Sure. Let's, um, let's talk about reconciliation, a- actual steps, because I, I think there's, again, as I mentioned, we're we're not talking about this enough. What can we do to, again, we could talk about policy and uh, what the borders will look like, if it will be a federation, one state, two states, right? There, there's so many details we, we could try to dish out, but it seems like those details, it, it doesn't matter what solution we come up with now. There's such a lack of distrust between both populations that it seems like any solution will fail because of the lack of distrust. So the, the, we are not even ready for a solution because of the, the current state of Israelis and Palestinians and how we feel about one another. So reconciliation, peace building, the, the peace building process, how we build a unified narrative. So let's talk about that. Um, I'll, I'll start with one, I think, um, acknowledge the mistakes of the past, right? 
people often don't like to get blamed for the for the errors of their grandparents. And in general, people just don't like to acknowledge that their people have committed crimes against other people. I think that this is not about acknowledging that us as individuals have done any wrong, but us as part of nations and societies have harmed our neighbors. And this is true both amongst Israeli society, the, the nation of Israel and the nation of Palestine. We've both harmed each other. There's been terror attacks. There's been occupation and oppression. Acknowledging the mistakes of the past and a, a, a national apology of, of one another. I think that's a good place to start. It shows that we're sincere. It shows that we acknowledge the mistakes and we're ready to move forward. Anything you guys uh, think beyond that we can we can do? Uh, I think uh, I think that's good, and I think we could start. We could, um, I mean, <clears throat> ways where we can, um, I guess, empower or support people that are trying to do the same thing between one another on many different levels. I mean, from from the private sector to to policy. Um, Personally, I think that um, Palestinians, I mean, we still have a lot of our own internal issues. We desperately need to form some sort of unity. Um, and uh, uh, it would really be uh, in our best interest to have some more transparency over where like aid funding is going towards us and how we can optimize that you know what i mean to 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 get to a stage where um where we can start actually doing something um uh one of the i mean <laughs> that's one of the biggest problems is when when i often ask or try and inquire about how is the aid funding being used how transparent is it it's very difficult to find out <laughs> what's going what's what's going on um, and then, I mean, once we have clarity on that, we can we have we can analyze and refine uh, our, our leadership structure. There has to be, you know what I mean, this type of di dialogue internally um, between ourselves, so that we can put ourselves in a position where um, we can start negotiating with the other side, and something actually something actually happens. And obviously. Um, um, yeah, any movements that sort of support this would be uh, helpful to the situation. Um, <clears throat> one of the things, if yeah, I could I just, just I, I just want I want you to elaborate on on that so so people fully understand. Uh, the PA gets funding, right? This is where you're saying the PA gets funding. It's not clear where that goes, and you think there needs to be more transparency because obviously. Uh, putting money into Palestinian neighborhoods can help elevate their well-being and being in an elevated state of well-being, they will be in a better position to, to be. Yeah, not, not just, I mean, not just transparency, but I, I don't like, um, but for the, the, getting transparency, so we're in a better position to plan and optimize, you know, what we do with that. Um, there has to be a consolidated plan. Um, um, and, and, and that's one of the things which is very difficult to happen. And I mean, how the international community can help. I mean, instead, like uh, with whatever funding they're giving to the leadership, I mean, it's one thing to support the leadership, 
But I mean, how much of that is getting back to the people on the ground? Um, and then and we can innovate ways where we can empower people because I think that is where the conversation is going to start is between the people of both societies, just like you and I, like neither none of us here in the leadership of the, the we're the people. Um, so um, something like for Australia example, um, could take some of the aid funding that it supposedly gives right, which is approximately 44 million, which I'm not really sure what goes on with that. But let's say you take a portion of that and you subsidize imports coming in from Palestine. So Palestinian product, you know, um, that would make it, you know what I mean, more competitive for Palestinian product to arrive and to compete in the marketplace. And that redirects funding to the people, which in turn, you know, creates jobs and, and has flow on effects, which are positive. You know, that's that's how I'd like to see, you know, Palestinians in the diaspora engage with their, you know what I mean, like in, in the international community, um, um, make a change, you know, and you don't have to be in the, you don't have to be in Palestine, you know, or, you know in these areas um, to, to make that happen. So. Cool. I'm with you. <clears throat> um, oh. Maybe this might be one of the differences between the Muslim perspective and the Christian perspective when it comes to reconciliation, for me anyway, is that while every, I agree with nearly everything Jason said, we need to find a way to improve the lives of the Palestinians and get some transparency. If tomorrow, like the Israelis were to give every Palestinian, like, you know, equal, like, equal access to water, all this stuff and give them money, their lives would improve and it would be a great start. But that doesn't solve, for example, someone who lost a family member. And also on the Israeli side as well, if we suddenly have peace and Israelis are able to come to Nablus to buy sweets and Jericho to buy ice cream and all this stuff, does the Israeli who lost a family member in the attack, does he truly move on? And so for us to have reconciliation, I agree that transparency is important. I agree approving the lives of Palestinians is important, but I think it needs to be possibly from the ground up. It could be an official policy as well, but in, for example, in our culture, we have a thing called a sulha. Uh, sulha, it's like where you gather and you make peace when there's been a problem between the families. When a sulha has been made, no matter how I feel, if my family has made peace between this family, it's solved. Like there's no, oh, but I, no, it's solved. Now that can be a bit of a lengthy process, but it usually solves problems for the good. While a piece of paper doesn't do that. If someone in Ramallah or someone in Jerusalem make a deal with each other, that doesn't take away the fact that I've lost family members. That doesn't take away the fact that people have lost property. That doesn't take away all this stuff, and it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't recognize any of those either. Like, it's even if they were to include in a future peace treaty, whatever happens, whether it's autonomy or two separate states, saying okay, all good, all well and done, forgive and forget. The average person's not going to do that. I mean, if you talk to an Israeli about why they support what they support all the time, whether it's the wall or this, this and that, they'll tell you, "I remember what happened in the Intifada." Well, if you talk to a Palestinian who says, "I support." certain activities because of this, this and that, they're going to say, well, I remember them seizing land. I remember them assaulting people in my family. I remember losing people. And so we are a Middle Eastern country, for better or for worse. Both people are Middle Eastern. And so I think we should incorporate parts of that into the culture. And so how when Palestinians have clashes, when we have fights, the elders of the older people from both sides come together and they try and sort it out. And usually it, it works for better or for worse. 
in Hebron with my family is when there's problems, people don't go to the Palestinian Authority. They don't go to the Israelis. They try and work it out amongst each other. And it, it usually works a lot better than anything else. When you both go to, when you go to the court and one wins and one loses, do both parties leave happy? Do both parties? No. It's usually always better to settle out of court, to settle it between yourselves and to have a third party involved. And so for reconciliation, I do believe that we need to obviously engage people on the ground who have been personally aggrieved. And it's a lengthy process. It'll probably even be a costly process. But official, officially, if we have people meet, discuss the issues, solve it out, then I think that will lead to more reconciliation than, say, compensation. I think compensation is important, but I think that throwing money at a problem is not doesn't heal wounds. And so I think that we should look into some of the Middle Eastern aspects of our culture for reconciliation. And I think that we should acknowledge that improving Palestinian lives is great. Improving Israeli lives is great. But people care a lot more about money because it was all about money than they would have accepted all sorts of compensation deals in the past. Yeah, I, I wonder what a national Soha would look like. How we how we scale that right to to millions of people, and it, it's not just between us and um, Jewish individuals. Many Palestinians since the first Intifada have a bit of an iffy relationship with Druze, because many Druze were in the border guards, and you know they were in the Israeli army as well, and they were just as violent as the others. And right. so I think we need to sort out our problems as well. We may both speak Arabic, but the relationship is no better between a Jewish Israeli and a Druze Israeli than a Palestinian. So. Right. And, and for those for those viewing who are not familiar with the Druze, they are um, in a minority ethnic group in Israel. There's, I think, less than 100,000 in the whole world, maybe around 100,000. And they're primarily in Israel, Syria, Jordan. And I Latin think there's a hundred. I think there's I think there might be less or just over 100,000 um, Israeli citizens oh, who are Druze. Oh, just in Israel. OK, it, it, it yeah. is. A, it is a small ethnic group. Uh and and it's it's true, you know, they, they even have been accused of being um, more violent than than what many Israelis have been. From what I understood, their their unit isn't allowed what wasn't allowed to go into Gaza the last operation because the operation before that they they were acting in a way they definitely should not have been. Not trying to throw them under the bus, but it seems like there is some deep rooted uh, tension between the Jewish community and. Uh, Palestinian, the Palestinian community. So you're right. There is reconciliation. It's not just Jews. It's you know Jews, Muslims. Definitely, definitely. Since the first intifada, there has been a bit of beef between Druze and not not into not on an individual level, but uh, definitely since the first intifada, there has there is issues which I think need to be resolved long term. Yeah, I'm with you. What one challenge? And I'm going to pose a question, and it's perfectly acceptable if there's no good answer because I, I don't have a good answer. Last Thursday, I was at a, a meeting done by the home. The home is an organization that, that advocates for a one state solution where all people are, are equal under the law. They want the entire land to be Israel, but they want Palestinians to have autonomy and equal rights. Uh, it was a great meeting, uh, 10 Palestinians, eight Israelis. We took a picture at the end, we uploaded it. All the Palestinians, aside from one, asked to have their faces blurred. Why? Because, A, they didn't want uh, issues with some of their neighbors, and B, the PA actually arrests uh, Palestinians that are normalizing. Uh, th mm. This is 
amplified in Gaza with Hamas. It's even worse. A friend of mine, Rami Aman, who was actually interviewed on the Standing Up podcast on my channel. You guys can check out that interview. He was arrested by Hamas six months ago and will likely be in prison for three years for speaking to Israelis. This is extremely demoralizing. The anti-normalization movement is very strong and it's not only culturally strong, it's enforced by uh, governments as well. It's clear that what we're doing now is important. We need to speak, we need to, we need to engage in dialogue, we need to engage in reconciliation. How can we do that when there's so much fear on the Palestinian side in, in doing this work? And I imagine there are many more that would love to speak up, that would love to normalize with their Israeli neighbors, but don't because of fear. How do we break out of that? And really, I, I don't have a clear answer, so you guys can say you don't know, and we'll, we'll move on or we'll brainstorm. Um, I mean, like, this is the thing. Like, I, so I think both Tarek and I would probably agree that where we, we, we wouldn't, we would both be against um, the PA and Hamas arresting people for talking to Israelis um, because I think that we should be doing the opposite. And this is, this is, this is what I mean by we need to um, reestablish it integrity within our leadership uh, and make it, you know, um, take a more sort of pragmatic, rational, and realistic approach to this. We have to, when people say like they want to free Palestine, you have to define what that means. You know what I mean? Exactly. You know, do you want to, do you want to have a little bit of it? Do you want, like our, our goal must be clarified. You know what I mean? In order to have clear leadership, like we have to decide amongst ourselves, what do we actually want? You know what I mean? Like, what do we want to happen in Gaza? What do we want to happen um, to our cities? And then, put that into a plan like invest aid into a master plan like make you know like if if only let's say the hamas leadership took whatever money they have and they got the and they spent it on uh master planners and architects to, to just to show just you know what i mean what they would like to happen in you know what i mean like like to happen in gaza it's like prime you know what i mean uh uh, real estate and at least like show some sort of ambition you know what i mean i think the, these are things that and and how could you have that you know what i mean uh if you are constantly um if, if you're arresting people for just talking to to, to someone else i i, I, I right. really am opposed to to that sort of <clears throat> behavior it takes courage i guess i mean like it's easy for me to say because i'm not there you know, but the people that you met that decided to have their faces blurred, you know, like they have courage that like I admire their courage for going to do to do that. But at some stage, you know what I mean? Like we have to be like, nah, mate, we're going to like, we're gonna, <laughs> like, I'm not going to be intimidated by you. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to let, you know, uh, the stigmas that you have. You know what I mean? Control, you know what I mean? My behavior in regards to that. And I think eventually that's what needs to sort of, that needs to sort of happen. And I don't know, Tarek, you might agree or disagree. <clears throat> I, I agree that I agree that people should not be arrested for talking to people. 
I very much agree with that. Um, I think normalization is a interesting topic because just talking to Israelis, is that a crime? No. But one of the reasons why, in a way, normalization gets such a pushback from many aspects of Palestinian society. I know um, Adar is correct that many Palestinians do want to talk, but many also are against it. But the reason why is because for them, normalization, rightly or wrongly, they see normalization as legitimization of the status quo. Yeah. So there's many yeah. people actually doing what you're doing, Jason. So there's a town in the north of Na uh, around Nablus called Rawabi. Now, that's trying to build a modern Palestinian city. It's trying to do all these things. But what do they get accused of? Normalization. While what they're doing in a way is actually good for Palestinians, at the same time, it does feel like you're creating like a green zone while everything else is terrible. Like how in Iraq, how like there was a part of Baghdad that was functioning, they had cafes and everything, while the rest of Iraq had to deal with no sewage, suicide bombings, clashes and all that. And so I think the reason why there is such a big pushback, and I don't, I'm not talking about what the PA or what, Hamas is doing, I don't agree with punishing people for talking, but why Palestinian society, many aspects of it are against normalization and not just BDS, like we're talking run of the mill people is because when you're meeting with, let's just say settlers, and I, and I, don't, and I, I don't even mean settlers like, because you know, the term term's so broad, like not someone in Ma'ala Dumim or in Neviyakov Piskadzeev, but someone say in Hebron. If you're meeting with people um, in like settlers with Hebron, which some people do, there are Palestinians every single day who face harassment. Now, I'm sure, like, the people in Hebron, the Hebron settlements will tell you that we have to deal with this, this, and that. But I know from family there and also people there that you have in Hebron, you have one group of people under military rule and one people under civil rule or civilian law. And so if I'm going and talking to these people under civilian law while this other group of people who I actually have blood connections to are under military rule and dealing with harassment and dealing with all these things, I'm not going to be a very popular guy. Like, I don't think I should be arrested for that, but I think that's one of the reasons why society, why Palestinian society pushes back against it, because they do see, some of them see stuff like what me and Jason doing now, I don't think all, but I think meeting possibly, and look, we're going to have to talk to settlers because they're there, we're going to have to figure it out, but meeting with them and talking with them while not criticizing the situation, I believe most Palestinians are against that because you have people who, and I'm not saying they're responsible for all the problems. One of my biggest issues with the military rule in the West Bank is that it gives the PA an excuse for everything. So why isn't there water running? The like the military rule slash occupation, whatever you want to call it. I know that word, people get into semantics, they talk about this, this and that, but the military rule. And so I think that is one of the things about normalization is that if people are doing what me and Jason are doing now and what you're doing now, Adar, talking about what's best for the people, and saying we don't like what's bad, we want to solve, and we like what's good, we want to solve it, then I don't think people have any issue with that. But if you're meeting with people who the rest of the population sees as the cause of a lot of the problems, rightly or wrongly, without discussing it, I think people would be against that. It would like be you meeting with people in, say, I wouldn't say they're equal to Hamas, but let's say Hamas supporters, and you not saying, I don't like, I, I want you guys, like you not mentioning the violence, or you say, or you not saying, I think you should disassociate with the violence that took place. If you wanted to bring that up, I'm sure many Israelis would be very uncomfortable with the idea of you meeting with these people but not criticizing some of their beliefs. If that makes right. sense, I probably went on a bit of a rant. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that's a, a great point. And you, you actually, I'm happy you you said military rule and occupation because it shows you're attentive to language. And first of all, you know, just so it's 
it's very clear. You guys are both free to use whatever language you're comfortable on this show. I'm not offended by any of these terms. Say, say whatever you'd like. But that being said, there is a language that will be more accepting for the people you want to reach. So often when, when uh, someone uses the word uh, occupation, many Israelis shut down. They're like, there's no occupation. They refuse to listen. And those, those are the Israelis that we need to reach. Those are the Israelis that we need to convince. So it's, it seems like in many instances when speaking to Israelis, saying using the term military rule and not occupation, they'll be more open to hearing. So I found that to be more effective. So I'm happy, I'm happy you mentioned that. I want to share a yeah. comment by uh, our, our guest, uh, J.Y. Gerard. Thank you for the comment because it's true and it just reinforces what Tarek said. I think you are not going to remove the negative connotations of normalization without drawing a distinction between acceptance of the situation versus building a path forward. So that that's exactly it. You know, normalization and anti-normalization, they're not quite binaries. That you know, there's there's a spectrum. On one side of the spectrum, it could be like we just need to love Israelis, be their friends, act like all's good. The other side is we don't talk to them. We don't engage with them. They're our enemies. Somewhere in the middle, it would be, sure, we need to build ties with them. We need to communicate. We need to engage in dialogue. We need to um, find solutions, but we cannot pretend like there's no issue. When we speak to Israelis, we need to talk about the issues. We need to bring up the issues. We, we, we need to con confront this challenge and work to solve it. And I would say that it's probably a healthy balance between the anti-normalization and normalization extreme. And I think Essentially, what you're doing, what what we do, what we achieve in doing that, is saying, yes, dialogue is important, making friends is important, the the humanization process is important, but we can't pretend like there's no issue. So, I'm 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 definitely. With you. Um, can I just quickly yeah. put in this? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, um, a lot of Palestinians are involved. The reason many of them who are involved with the anti-normalization are involved with BDS. Many of them are involved with that. That's one of the things that promotes the anti-normalization. I have no affiliation to BDS. <clears throat> um, and I think that it is actually impossible for many Palestinians to be against, to get involved with normalization, uh, be against normalization, because economically speaking, especially if you go to parts of Area C, everyone, there's no alternatives. Um, while many people were agricultural workers in the past, or they herded sheep, or they had their crops, well, a lot of those areas now have been cut off for security purposes, or, you know, a lot of those former irrigation channels have now got modern plumbing, so they can't really do what they used to do. And so now they're working in settlements. So the issue is very complex. That being said, though, I want to just, because uh, I don't think we're going to discuss BDS, but I just want to put in a but for many of the people who are watching. People have to understand is that we've talked about how the PA is far from perfect. Many people who aren't Palestinian need to understand BDS allows the average Palestinian in the diaspora and even back home to get involved and feel like he's taking control of his destiny, rightly or wrongly. I'm not involved with it. I have nothing to do with it. It is very hard for any Palestinian to get involved with the PA unless you have connections. You're doing this, this and that. Other groups which are less than savory, it's pretty hard to get involved with them as well. You know, we can't just, unless you have a big family, it's quite hard to make changes on the ground unless you have a lot of money or big family. While BDS for all their faults, for all their things. It is an organic movement made up of members of the diaspora. And so that is why it's a powerful thing. And so just for anyone who ever wonders why some Palestinians are for it, it's one of the few places where they feel they can take control of their destiny, where they can actually get involved in the process. 
because right now it feels like there's bureaucrats who aren't even coming to the table. Back in the day, they would just talk to the Israelis. If you look at all the videos in 2099, there's all these nice dinners and lunches taking place at expensive hotels in Sinai and all this. And they're just these people that don't really, a lot of the time don't represent us necessarily, are discussing with the Israelis. And right now they're not even talking to each other. And so what avenue does the average Palestinian have to at least feel like they're making changes on the ground? And whatever your opinion on BDS is, it's clearly been effective because, you know, you've got the two sides, the Israelis and the Palestinian lobby groups just constantly going at loggerheads to each, like, loggerheads to each other, especially in America where they battle it out on campuses every day. And so while I'm not affiliated with BDS, I do just want to put in to anyone wondering why Palestinians support it, because many Israelis like to bring up that many Palestinians lose their jobs as a result of it in the soda stream factory and stuff like that. It is one of the few avenues where Palestinians can take control of their own destiny. Because, yeah, I don't, unless you know someone in the PA, that's done same with Hamas, same with stuff like that. that. You know, that is a very interesting point that I've never considered. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. Jason, yeah, um, I, yeah. Yeah, no, I, that, that's, it's, it's very true what you, you said, Tarek. And I guess that highlights the importance of an alternative avenue. You know, like, um, uh, like I would be more concerned about building the, the, the Palestinian economy, buying Palestinian product, importing Palestinian product, more focus on creating policy that it makes these things easier than, than an avenue where I'm, I'm, I'm boycotting, divesting and sanctioning. You know, I would rather spend my energy on uh, creating a movement um, that's based on uh, uh, and more focused on um, the economic development of our of our own than than attacking the economy of somebody else of 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 the other side. I think that would have a much more um, greater effect, but unfortunately, it's the it's that's that's the situation. I can understand that, and so that's that's why I, I think feel- Jason's sentiment. Yeah. I was going to say maybe this is comes back to the religious divide where Jason is very positive, he's very optimistic, while I am a bit of a cynic. I do believe that is probably probably the best way to go about it. But at the same time, you know, it's one of the few cards that Palestinians feel like they have in their deck. You know, the Israelis have got population growth in the form of Israelis living in the West Bank. They've got the army. They've got this. While for Palestinians, the one of the few decks in the card they feel like they have is BDS, and so. I definitely agree we should be buying Palestinian products, but the one thing which no one seems to talk about, no one seems to know is the reason why we don't have as many products. And that is because of, um, as one of your previous guests, Rudy pointed out, back in the day, a lot more things used to be made in Israel, like among Israelis and Palestinians before they opened the economy up. And so when the Palestinian Authority came in, the Palestinian Authority was a very rushed process. They didn't come in with economic laws. And so you had places like Hebron where tens of thousands of people were employed in making shoes, making all these products. And then overnight, because when the Israelis were in charge, it had Israeli protectionist laws, it all came under the same law. Well, now you have the Palestinian Authority coming in and all this industry just disappearing overnight. So thousands of people unemployed overnight. And so they're kind of forced to work in, like the only options are Israeli settlements. And so that's something which people don't really talk about. They don't like, it's not like they were living great before, but imagine thousands of people just suddenly unemployed in a matter of months which people don't really seem to know, but it, it actually, in my opinion, later on contributed to the second and the father with thousands of unemployed people. But yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I want to kind of um, 
sum, summarize this because I, I think I think there's been a lot of good points, and I and I think there's some some coherent uh, plan that we've that we've slowly come to. We acknowledge that normalization is not zero sum. We need to be somewhat moderate moderate in in our approach to normalization. We can understand why Palestinians support BDS. It's one of the only ways they feel like they can impact change. Others may take a more extreme route and, you know, commit terror attacks, right? That's like an extreme version of trying to commit change. BDS is a peaceful version of that, which it's interesting because many Israelis say Palestinians should do peaceful form of protest, but then they get upset when Palestinians are part of BDS as well, right? So it's like, you know, you got to give them something. I, I think maybe an even better solution is having more of these, and, and there are a fair amount, and I'll, I'll share I'll share one with you, but more dialogue groups and more cross-border communication, the issue is how that's viewed, right? So it's like there, there's an even more positive way for Palestinians to get involved, and that's to engage in some kind of a moderate version of normalization to, to progress dialogue and the, and the peace process. The problem is that poses challenges we've already mentioned. One thing that I've experienced personally, which kind of gives me hope on this issue, there's a brilliant organization by the name of Minds of Peace. They host public negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians. And essentially what that is, is they will arrange a few tables in a public area. It's been done in Jerusalem. It's been done in Ramallah, although that didn't go so well. Um, nothing serious, just, you know, a bunch of anti-normal, anti-normalization Palestinians uh, came and protested and they had to wrap it up. In all fairness, that happened in, in Jerusalem as well. A lot of extreme Israelis came and started yelling. So Jerusalem and Ramallah, they didn't go so well. Tel Aviv goes very well. Uh, They're a lot more relaxed out there. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the salty air, who knows? Salty, yeah, salty air beach and uh, maybe being a little more secular. No, I'm kidding. I know I have many religious viewers. <laughs> that was a joke. Maybe, maybe, maybe it wasn't. Anyways, what we noticed is that bringing one bus of Palestinians to negotiate was difficult. They were scared. They were scared to be seen as normalizers. We got to uh, essentially a tipping point where they had like critical mass and it was easier to bring 10, 20 buses of Palestinians than it was to bring one. They felt comfortable with many other Palestinians. So it seems like this is what, what we need to try to achieve, a tipping point amongst Palestinians where they feel comfortable engaging in dialogue. And again, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean kumbaya, right? We understand why the kumbaya mentality is not acceptable for all too many people, rightfully so. But, uh, but reach the tipping point where Palestinians feel like they come can come and engage in dialogue with Israelis and vice versa. And this is brilliant because most Israelis have never met any Pal have never met Palestinians. Sure, they'll meet Israeli Arabs, but they don't know Palestinians. Most Palestinians don't know any Israelis besides soldiers and settlers, neither of whom truly treat them as equals. Then, after a lifetime of lived experience and potentially poor education, which gives you a bad understanding of the other side, you sit in front of an Israeli or a Palestinian and they're listening to you and you get to talk to them, they hear you, and then you hear them. That is one of the most life-changing, mind-opening experiences that I think Israelis and Palestinians can ever experience, and I think it could change a lifetime 
of experience or teachings in an instance. So this concept, I would love to see a way to scale this in mass amongst hundreds of thousands. Be like <laughs> this should literally be policy and create yeah. like a joint leadership reconciliation <clears throat> effort where you you're doing that slowly. You know, I mean, I think. Probably- um, yeah, sorry for interruption, Jason. I, I do, I do like your idea of it being official policy. I do think it'd be quite important the diaspora thing. The one thing I want to point out is that not everyone is as calm and collective as Jason. And so, the one thing, especially among Palestinians in the diaspora, is unlike myself, I've been to Jerusalem many times. Not all experience is positive, you know. But I know that the average Israeli, when I see him, I don't have this feeling. Which many Palestinian friends of mine who are 1948 Palestinians, like Jason, but they've haven't grown up in Australia, they've grown up in Kuwait. And so their parents were expelled in the 90s after being expelled in 1948. When they meet Israelis, like they usually just avoid talking to them because they, they have all this weight on their chest. Like they want to just get it out. And they just want to unleash and say, what about this, this and that? Da, da, da. While I think that would be awesome in policy, the one thing I have noticed is maybe it'd be better if it wasn't policy, and especially in the diaspora communities across Australia or America, because you know Jews and Palestinians, seem to all like it's mandatory for for our families anyway to make us go to university whether we need it or not but it would be good if maybe older people could come in and explain to them beforehand you guys can be very emotional you're young turn it down a little i would would actually want to know the age of the people that you had at this meeting because a lot of the young ones are the ones that are the most you know they're the ones that feel like they don't have time to deal even though they have all the time in the world like one of my cousins is 16 and he literally says like, oh, I want to solve it now. I want to solve it now. I'm like, you're 16, man. It doesn't like you can wait a few years. But as in, I I just said every time I've talked to Palestinians in university campuses, and stuff like that, I'll tell them like, okay, maybe we can meet. Maybe we can try and sort something out. But then the Palestinian will show me a post by like the Israeli thing on campus saying, how is Australia versing Palestine in a soccer game when Palestine isn't recognized by Australia? Or then like, I'll talk to a Jewish friend of mine. He said, how can we meet these guys? They shared a quote by from Leila Khalid or something. So I think maybe you need to be a bit more mature to engage in what you're doing, because I think it's great. And I think it should be official policy, but I want to like, what was the demographic? Like, were they in the late twenties or thirties? So or We've actually had a very wide diversity of demographics from high schoolers, two grandparents, I would say nearly 50% women, which uh, even amongst the Palestinians, which may seem surprising, but very high percentage of Palestinian women come to these. We noticed, and and it's interesting because we acknowledged before that the younger generation is more extreme, but when when we do a panel of high schoolers, they reach conclusions faster than the the adults. Now it's Mm. possible that the majority of children of youth might be more extreme, but the ones who are moderate enough to come to the table are also open-minded in a way and have a level of communication that maybe the adults won't have. Right. So that's, you know, the majority might still be extreme, but you still have a more powerful counter amongst the youth. And we've also done all women panels and they also do a better job than the mixed panels. And, I think, you know, I, I hate engaging in group differences just because it's a slippery slope, but sometimes if it's to complement a group, I'll do it. I think on average, and keyword on average, it says nothing about the individual, but on average, women are 
a little higher in empathy than men. And I think empathy is just essential to, uh, to solving conflicts. So when you have like, when you have a group of women sitting and speaking that they just figure it out and, and the youth, it's not, you know, maybe just growing up in the 21st century, maybe their English is better, right? There, there could be, uh, there, there could be many different reasons as to why different groups seem to have more success. What I, what I would say though, oh, and just mention settlers come, uh, it's a very diverse group of Israelis and Palestinians, but not diverse enough because there's a very obvious filter that all these people need to go through. They need to be open-minded enough to show up. So th this is kind of what you mentioned. The most extreme of our societies are not even willing to show up. Either the most extreme or the most pessimistic, which seems to be probably the majority, right? I've tried to invite many Israelis, they say, uh, you know, it's pointless. It's a waste of time. Nothing, nothing can be accomplished. And I'm sure many Palestinians feel the same way. Mm. So it's true that the people, uh, the overwhelming come, majority, right, right. So it, it's true that the majority of people who come, you know, are, are by default more open-minded. That being said, you know, want to change a few, few to change many, many to change the world. So we, we need to start somewhere. And we need to find a way to make this kind of work mainstream. And uh, again, you know, this m may be hard to hear for for many Palestinians, but if this is the if this is the path we're going to take, it won't happen overnight, right? This is something that seems to be generational change. I wonder how we can do this. If this is enough to give people hope, or do we need something else for Palestinians to feel like it's worth it for them to invest in this and and work and do it instead of just remaining in despair? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that there's enough. <clears throat> that's enough. There might, you know, we might need to do more. Yeah, I mean, like we can we can look at ways to do this in the private sector amongst uh, Palestinian and Israeli entrepreneurs. You know, like I, I think that there is like a space there that, you know what I mean, like in the private sector where we can both operate um, and look for ways where we can um, do business with each other or innovate. Um, I think that's uh, like that would add or that would con con contribute to the, <clears throat> I don't know if, um, what are your, what are your thoughts on that, Tarek? Uh, I definitely think that I think the private sector, in a way, it already exists in a lot. Of, like, obviously, not to the extent it could, but you know, the Palestinian economy is entirely reliant on these. They're in, they're interconnected, so you know, Palestinians provide a cheap source of labour. They also consume a lot of Israel. Okay, well, I thought I cut off for a second. Um, yeah, the yeah, that, the we Israelis have time spend. Yeah, I was wondering what that was. We're good. Uh, the stuff that goes from Israeli-controlled area to the Hamas-controlled area is it's Israeli goods. So there is there is quite a lot of entrepreneurs doing what they need to do, but I do think that the big part is the cultural part. And so while I think that <clears throat> entrepreneurs will make it easier, I do think that they're not the be-all and end-all. I think luckily Palestinian society is heavily like a very merchant-influenced society. Nearly every like nearly everyone is involved in buying or selling something in one way or another. That can make a difference, but it's a very a bit of a touchy subject at the moment. If you look at what happened earlier in this year, 
the Palestinian Authority asked farmers to no longer buy calves from Israeli farms. And it began a tit-for-tat thing where Israelis said, well, if you're not going to buy cows from us, we're going to make sure you can't export to Jordan. And it became this weird back and forth. And so maybe the entrepreneurs can make a difference. But unfortunately, because we have Literally. governments trying or groups of people trying to represent us, yeah, we do have some limitations. I am being the cynic of the group, but <clears throat> I do think entrepreneurs can have a positive effect. But the one thing which surprises most people who have never been there before is the interaction between Palestinians and Israelis. Is that businessmen do all seem to know each other. They're all involved. They all speak Hebrew, as far as I know. From every Palestinian city, there is someone who's engaging in trade with the Israelis. Great. Uh, we're going to start taking questions. So uh, friends, start asking questions. Uh, if you've enjoyed our guests, their contact details are in the description. Feel free to reach out. They'd love to continue this dialogue afterwards. Uh, my contact details are there as well. Feel free to reach out. If you haven't subscribed yet to the channel, please do so. If you like it, if you don't, don't. We do uh, one debate every Thursday and we do lots of other cool content. I spoke to Noam Chomsky last week in a pre-recorded interview for the Standing Up podcast that will be released in a few days. Um, hold on one second. Sorry, I, I got distracted by, by a chat message. I'm not seeing any questions, but I do want to make one last comment on the chat today. This is the 15th great debate yet. And I will say that this is probably the most peaceful and compassionate our chat has ever been. So I appreciate everybody who has joined and I appreciate the, the, the dialogue that I've seen. Uh, the work that Jason, Tarek and I are doing this is just a small part of it. It doesn't end here. It involves every single one of us. We all play an important role in the peace building process. You are all a part of it. And even just the way you are engaging right now in the comments is, is part of that process. So I appreciate you all. Uh, we do have some questions. Ayad Mas, who is a regular guest. Ayad, it's great to have you here again. Guys, we're going to leave the the... Uh, answers to two minutes, okay? Two minutes each. And feel free to say you don't have an opinion on it, right? We don't need to pretend to have an opinion on something we don't. It's super cool to say, uh, you know, I don't know. What is your opinion <laughs> about the sulha? So you got, I, I, you pronounced it sulha. I've heard it sulha because we use that word too. We we have many words that are from Arabic. So we call it sulha with a kha, which most people can't do. Um, it's, it, is it Solha? How do you say it in Arabic? Solha. Yeah, Solha. Solha. What is your print on the Solha between Hamas yeah. and Fatah? Yeah, my Arabic's getting better every day. Mm -hmm. And if it will make Iran closer. Uh, Ayad, do, do you mean Iran closer to us? To I, I actually don't even have an opinion on this. I, I've never thought about this, but I've I've never viewed either as a partner for peace, so I, I haven't thought much about what peace between them looks like. But you know, maybe maybe Jason or Turek has a uh, has some thoughts. 
So I'm in curious. regards to them, <clears throat> for now, any, I'll just say in regards to them, for now, working out their differences, I don't believe that either group represents the majority of Palestinian society, but both rec- represents sizable chunks, let's say. And they're very, very, very different. Regardless of your opinion on Hamas or Fatah, you look at the pictures when they meet and it's two different groups. One is bearded with shaved mustaches. One usually is either cleanly shaven or with a big bushy mustache, which among the older generation means a big deal in Palestinian society. And in regards to them having peace, they talk very bad about each other. If you look at the Palestinian sites that are pro-Hamas or the Palestinian sites that are pro-Fatah, they're not saying nice things about each other still. So they have their disagreements. And so have they made peace now for the time being? But at the end of the day, these two groups, they have their connections. Hamas is affiliated with other outside countries that were previously mentioned, or Fatah is affiliated with different groups. So they've put aside the differences for now, but unless there's money to be made or unless there is a true benefit, I do not see them staying friends. I wish they would stay friends, then violence would stop between Palestinians. But Hamas and Fatah, they're very, very, very different groups of people. Very, very different groups of people. Regal, I know to an Israeli that might seem strange. They seem like two groups of not so savory characters, but they're very different people. So I don't see it. It's saying. Okay. Uh, yeah, I could I could reinforce that that w- when we're not familiar with a group, we think they're all the same. It, it's it's just like a form a form of ignorance, right? So m- most people don't realize that Palestinians are so not monolithic that there's so many subcultures within within uh within unfortunately very very diverse it'd be a lot easier perhaps yeah and i mean and i mean jews are very diverse as well so i think it is important to understand that nuance and we actually have questions rolling in you know i always forget that there's a delay between our there's like a 15 second delay so sometimes it seems like there's no questions and then they all roll in we got a question by Marwan Abdelhamid, who's been a guest on the show. Awesome guy. What's up, Marwan? Can you discuss Hi. Israel and the U.S.'s role in propping up Hamas? I mean, this this was to you, Tarek, but it's a question <laughs> to all of us. Um, I, I actually don't – I don't think Israel currently – I, I, I'm not sure that's true. I don't think either are propping up Hamas. I know that there's some evidence that Israel helped Hamas in their early days to fight the PLO. They viewed them as, as uh, you know, a, a counterinsurgency that they helped arm and fund, similar to how the CIA funded the Taliban in the 70s. What we've learned is you should not probably just don't give people weapons in the Middle East to t- take the weapons away. But uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't see any evidence of them propping them up now. I think they'd both be happier if, if Hamas was gone. But um, Marwan, feel free to read uh, comments. I think um, he. I yeah. think he. Go ahead. Uh, I'll, I'll, Jason, do you want to go for that? Well, I mean, I just wanted to touch on the previous question as well about the sulfur. Like, I think it's important that people. Like, I think it's that there has to be like. Actually speaking, there has to be a line of communication between Hamas and the PA. Um, although, like like you said, like it's it, it, there has been a funny relationship and it's weird now. Um, I think that is something which Palestinian people um, should be sort of aiming towards: is putting pressure on their leadership to 
get a unified uh, unified government, and that rationally means getting these two groups of people to talk to each other. Um, uh, unfortunately, um, there there has to be a way of like reestablishing the integrity in these <clears throat> groups um, and redefining or defining exactly. You know, I mean, what our goals are and how can we can strategically work towards them. Um, as for the um, the U.S.'s role in propping up Hamas and Israel's role in propping up Hamas, um, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I don't know enough about what happened there behind the scenes to be able to comment on that properly. I just want to reinforce Jason's point. I do definitely agree. And also what Adar said, unfortunately, Palestinian society is actually quite diverse, contrary to public, um, but even racially, we it used to be actually much more open-minded. But after many people saw the failures of the left side of Palestinian politics, the communist and the socialist groups, they went to a more Islamist route. Many Palestinians did because they thought with what happened with Iran, with the Iranian revolution, that maybe the Islamists are the key to their success and then you saw the rise of Hamas and other groups and even Palestinians are still quite divisive Marwan who is quite popular many Palestinians is very interesting guy on paper me and him are the same but being like my family's from Hebron his family's from Safad culture were very different so Marwan's much more open-minded he's a lovely guy I'm not close-minded but I'm much more traditional much more traditional and so Marwan's idea of a Palestine it would be great for everyone probably better for very much better than my idea of Palestine, but how Marwan would want to live, how I want to live, it's kind of two different things. He's still a great person, obviously. His Republic of Jerusalem idea is a great idea. I think it could be a nice solution. In regards to his actual question, I do know in the... Look, Israelis and Palestinians are constantly... Re, they're reacting to each other. So the Israelis are turning a blind eye to Hamas growing, to counter the way Fatah and the PFLP, the socialists and the nationalist groups... That seemed like a great idea at the time, and then long-term it backfired. I'm sure many Israelis, when the Intifada was happening, you know, the Palestinian Authority was only brought back in because the Israelis didn't want to deal with the Palestinians constantly rioting and protesting. So they brought in authority to manage the major cities. Look, every single Israeli you talk to complains about the Palestinian Authority. Every single Israeli talks about pay for slay, how they're not real partners for peace. Well, you guys brought them back, you know, only recently. In my lifetime, in 1997... The Israeli, uh, the Palestinian Authority was brought to Hebron, the most pop, like the, I think it's like the most populous Palestinian city, was brought in in 1997 by Netanyahu now, by the way. I'm pretty sure it's under his government they brought back the Palestinian Authority. And so because of we're constantly reacting to each other, instead of we're taking the first step forward, Israelis are doing this, we react to this. The Israelis see Palestinians doing that. Oh, sorry. But yeah, yeah, is it any better now? It, it seems like Australian internet, five, 10 is minutes. Any, yeah. It's terrible. People, yeah, people can vouch for that. Jason can vouch for that yeah, because right. um, Israelis and Palestinians are constantly reacting to each other. We're not able to put a foot forward and actually make a good decision, in my opinion. So Israelis turning a blind eye to Hamas's activities, which their rhetoric hasn't changed since the beginning. It kind of was obvious where it was going to go, but they turned a blind eye because they knew they would fight Fatah. While bringing in the Palestinian Authority so they don't have to deal with the Palestinians in Bejala, Bet Sahur, and all these places, it came back to bite them as well. It seems to be, and look, Palestinian Authority makes the same mistakes. The Palestinian Authority saying, we don't need to do this. We don't need this in writing. We don't need this. Well, it came back to bite them. So maybe instead of constantly reacting to things and being reactionaries, maybe we need to adopt a proper ideology and move forward. 
Because when you're being a reactionary, you're always number two. You're never number one. And it's a lot harder to pay catch up. 100%. Cool. We're going to take two more questions before we wrap it up. JY Gerar, thank you for joining us. Do you think engaging with, I'm, I'm assuming that is some kind of an Arabic slang. Yeah, that's um, how, um, that's what, how Levantine people type. Uh, people in Beled Hashem, I think, I'm not sure of the rest of the wider Arab world, but uh, people in Beled Hashem type that way. So the Levantine Palestinians usually type that way. We don't, a lot of the time we don't bother using Arabic. So like the seven becomes a ha, the three becomes an ain. Interesting. Um, especially so, it's, yeah, it's, it, it's a lot easier to type because you mix numbers and letters to write. Yeah. Because they resemble the Arabic, um, numerals and there's a lot more vowels in the Latin script than the Arabic script. So it's actually a lot easier to type. So he's actually wrote, um, I, actually, I can't read it properly. Sorry, my glasses, but I'm pretty sure he's writing the tribes, the Arabic word for tribes. Asher, Asher. Asher, yeah. Okay. I'm pretty sure. And ah, he's asking. Sure. So do, do you think engaging with, a share large families has a role to play in the reconciliation process. I, I mean, you know, just off the top yeah, of my head, it seems like a good idea. Large families have great influence. And if we get, get them as part of this process, you know, engaging, then sure. Yeah. Makes sense. Mm. I think uh, obviously. Yeah. sense i mean you're approaching large families are the ones with the influence i guess it's it's a strategic thing to go to them and be like hey this is how you know what what are your thoughts on xyz how do we start the reconciliation process what does reconciliation look like to you you know um um i think it's definitely a good idea and uh, listening to them and hearing what they well, how they define it and then having that conversation I would be like okay well have you considered this view or or something like that these these are very important dialogues that need to take place um, right. um, as someone in the chat wrote Palestinian society is still not all of it uh, it differs from city to city but it is quite clans still of a special uh, the clans and the right, tribes right, right. especially along the Bedouin sectors oh, Tell me when I'm okay. Yeah, no, I just brought up the comment. Oh, oh sorry, sorry. At least I'm breaking up. Okay. I'm very obviously nervous about Australian internet quality, but uh, <laughs> the Bedouin sector, Hebron, parts of Nablus, the clans are still quite important, for better and for worse. There's plus sides to that side of society and there's downsides. In our neck of the woods, it's very nice having a large amount of people backing you up. If things happen, they can pay for things, stuff like that. They protect you where it's quite lawless Palestinian society. And so I think it would be very important to engage the clans, even just for reconciliation purposes, because if you're dealing with the people who represent, like there's some clans that are several thousand strong easily. And so when you're dealing with these people, when you're dealing with someone who's quite old, who's able to speak on behalf of several thousand people, it makes the reconciliation process a lot easier. Yeah, makes sense. So yeah, let's get, let's get those big families on board. The other thing that I think that is really important to consider um, and something that we should also be um, actively talking about is how to relieve uh, the anxieties felt by Jews and Israelis um, about security, you know, because I, I feel that that is a sort of major, um, you know, a, a part to play in, in, in 
what's progressing a lot of things um, to happen with the society because it's, it's based in security. So I, I think that there has to be an internal conversation about this in order to be to 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 address this from the other side because um, if if I, if I can try and put myself um, in the other position like the uh, Palestinians unifying. Um, uh, re-establishing or creating a stronger sense or reform sense of uh, national consciousness, you know, um, th there will naturally be anxiety on the other side and a lot to do with security purposes. I mean, like I think in the previous um, uh, show that I was on with Rudy, um, one of the questions were um, that was put forth to Rudy was whether you know he would take responsibility of 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 the lives lost if they tore down the wall um and yeah, i think that, that asked, i think of uh, yehuda actually yeah uh, oh, and and i think um yeah i i i that this a significant uh like point in the debate which is how do we address the anxieties of the israelis that are going to be like okay well you know, um, if we're going to be, if there's going to be peace, if there's going to be freedom of movement, you know, what <clears throat> So I was wondering what I, your thoughts were as well. I, I just want to, yeah, are you yeah. talking to me or Adele? Oh, well, you, Tarek, but I guess the both of you. <laughs> no, Tarek, go ahead. I was just going to say I do... I do. I actually do because of. I talk to some Israelis online. I go back and forth. I do hear their concerns, and I do think it is important we understand them. Because regardless of where you stand, whether you are a Palestinian who wants all the land or you want to make peace or whatever, it's good to know what the other side's thinking anyway. And I do think it is quite important. You talk to any Israeli, they say you take down the wall. It goes back to two thousand and one. I do think Israelis should also understand, as Adal points out, and many do, us talking does sometimes have risks. Not so much we're in Australia, but. You know, when I'm talking to you guys right now, I have over, I have over a thousand people in my family. Some are living okay. Others are living right next to Ibrahim's tomb in Hebron. So constant source of tension, constant issues. So I do understand 100% where the Israelis are coming from. I think one of the biggest problems, and it's good that Jason and Adar have a large amount of empathy, but one of the biggest problems is this, is that many Palestinians don't seem to show empathy when it comes to Israelis discussing security concerns. But many Israelis don't seem to understand that when they tell us the wall is up there because of this, this, and that, but they always say the same thing. We don't like the wall, but it needs to be up there. And I can understand that. I can understand that sentiment. I would like them to understand as well. There are many things we don't like. Most Palestinians don't really feel comfortable with the idea. I'm not a citizen of Palestine or the Palestinian Authority, but most of them don't feel comfortable with the idea that on the books, the Palestinian Authority executes Palestinians, I'm pretty sure, for setting land, selling land to the Israelis. I'm quite certain that's actually a law on the books. It's like considered treason or something like that. Most Palestinians are not actually uncomfortable with that idea. But what do they say? The deterrent that that, rule, that law has ensures that a settlement won't pop up next door to me. Now, I don't like either. I don't like the wall and I don't like that law on the books. But we have to be able to separate them. We have to understand why these people have these concerns, why they support certain things. And so I 100% agree with Jason, but I just need to... I. I do think that one problem with Middle Eastern people in general is they don't seem, they have a magical ability to dehumanize the other faster than any other group of people in the world, I found. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, 100 percent. Awesome. Just real quick, I, I will give time for final thoughts. Uh, that's it for questions. If we did not get to answer your question, I apologize. Um, I hope you return next time. Next week, we're doing another great discussion. Next week, it's going to be about LGBTQ rights in the Jewish world. It's going to be very interesting. We have some great guests joining. Again, if you want to reach either of our guests or myself, our contact information is in the, in the description. Testament to how great you guys did today is the fact that this video does not have a single downvote, only upvotes on potentially the most controversial topic in history, only upvotes. It means you guys did a great job. And I'd love to have you back on again. And with that, I will leave you guys with some final words, whatever you want to tell our guests. Sorry. Awesome. <clears throat> I just want to say that I do definitely just want to reiterate, I 100% believe Palestinians have the right to self-determination. I want us to work out a situation between both of our peoples. And I really do want Palestinians to be able to have their traditions and rights protected, but I also want obviously Israelis to have some of their concerns addressed as well, their security concerns. Hopefully we can work it out. If that means two states, if that means one federal solution, who knows? People, people smarter than me have written about it. And I think we should look into that. But I do think that we need to show, obviously, like Jason said before, empathy towards each other. But I think we need to be honest with each other as well. Empathy is key. Yep. 100%. And I think, um, yeah, the, 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 the more of us um, that are getting together and, and communicating, um, uh, we will uh, outnumber those on the radicals on both sides um, and uh, build a, a new narrative together. Um, and, and that's, that, that's what I want to see happen between, between our two groups of people. I want those, um, I want, I want this narrative to be the, uh, the thing which people sort of look towards in terms of, um, uh, <clears throat> a better future. Amen, brothers. Uh, is all right? Yeah. I just respond to one person in the chat. He said, where I know you shouldn't read the chat. He says, we aren't close to the norm. Yeah, actually, I think Jason is. Yeah, hold on. Let, let, let's address that collectively. I'm going to bring up. The oh, comments. sorry. I apologize. No, no. All good. All good. I was actually going to address one of these comments. What's up, Starhopper? Hey. Starhopper <laughs> writes, there was no wall for decades. Your behavior is why that changed. Most of you glorify murderers. Okay. Let's have a little chat, buddy. Because Starhopper, I'm happy you're here and you know I love engaging with everybody, but most of your comments, I, I'm actually not sure I've seen a comment from you that is productive. And I, I want you to reflect on this idea. Do you think you've ever changed a Palestinian's mind? Do you think you've ever changed the mind of somebody who's anti-Israeli? Or do you just enjoy fighting without making any progress? But not only would I say you're not contributing to progress, I think you're contributing to regression because when you engage in comments like this and when you say, which I've seen you comment on other videos, there is no Palestine, stuff like that, that does nothing but contribute to the radicalization of the Palestinian people. It does nothing but, but contribute to how Jews and Israelis are viewed around the world because they see someone acting nasty. Now I want to address this comment specifically. 
your behavior. What you don't what you don't understand is that is actually in in it's it's a racist statement because of how you are engaging in group generalization. You are attributing the behaviors of some Palestinians to the entire collective. Let's let's talk about this how this would look amongst Jews. Jeffrey Epstein, he's a Jew. Could you imagine if somebody were to tell you children are abused because of your behavior? That would be probably anti-Semitic, right? Anti-Semitism is based off people attributing the actions of some Jews to the entire collective. That's exactly what you're doing, brother. So please. Yeah. And I think both, both myself and, and Adara will condemn, condemn uh, murdering the innocents on both sides. Without a doubt. Uh, I, I was mainly talking, and I, I didn't know that he's done this before. I was just mainly talking to the part where he says we don't even come close to representing the norm. In my experience with Palestinian Christians, they tend to be quite open-minded and liberal like Jason. My experience with Israelis, they're like they're half-half. They're either much like a Dar who want to sort out a situation or they just want to live their lives. In regards to me, I think I speak on behalf of quite a large amount of Palestinian Muslims. I am quite traditional, not like all of them. Some of them are quite secular. My family is over 2,000 strong. I can speak quite comfortably on behalf of them. I can speak on the ones in Jerusalem and the ones in Hebron. And that's why I said I fully believe in the right to Palestinian self-determination, but I want their lives to be improved. And do I think that's going to be achieved through the Trump plan or through a separate piece? No. But as I'm sure you're aware, we are a tribal society, many of us. And my clan, you can look it up, ask any Palestinian. We can, I can talk on behalf of quite a few Palestinians. Talk to someone in the chat who's Palestinian, they'll tell you about my family. They'll tell you that it's quite a large family and that I am able to speak on behalf of them. And that my opinion, they might not all agree with me, but we'll work something out. So I don't know who he is, but just ask other Palestinians in the chat. And then they'll tell my family. Yeah. And I would say this is part of the learning uh, process. You know, Starhopper and everyone else, you know, p people who are regulars here know what we bring up chats. It's not to attack people. It's literally just to to show different representation and, and, and address different points of views. And I do want to show something that Starhopper just added because he said more good than bad, acknowledging... <laughs> his experience with Palestinians has been more good than bad. So uh, again, you know, just w one final thought, because you Starhopper are very active in speaking about the conflict, see how you can take your words and take your time and make it productive to progressing peace. The goal should not be, how can I make a statement that seems true? Rather, how can I make a statement that gets more people to understand my truth? That should be the approach, my friend. So I'm happy you're here. Uh, Tarek, Jason, it's been a great pleasure. Well, I, I think it's really important that people like Starhopper see this. You know what I mean? Like, um, and, 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 and see, see more um, Palestinians that d don't want to attack or destroy, you know, his sense of national identity or, you know, his narrative and stuff like that. Like, that's, there are radicals on our side addressing those and we all have our bit to play in that but when when we talk or when we say something or when we engage we want to say something which is going to help you understand our side and show you that our intention is to explain to you what we've experienced 
but we all and 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 that we acknowledge you know the the, the things that you've experienced but let's push all this you know let's let's build something together um, um, and let's engage in conversation that is that is more uh, constructive amen so it's important it's important for start people like South Hopper to see this because I mean like they're they're the ones that have probably experienced like anti-semitism in some forms like he's probably had bad experiences with arabs or something like this and you know that that leaves that 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 has an effect on people you know and and in vice versa you know having a positive experience has an effect on people and we can become aware of this we become empowered and we can start putting out more positivity so something for him to consider because i've engaged with him before uh, I just want to throw in as well, any Palestinian that's coming on here is usually either a member of the diaspora. And as Adar pointed out before, they have to block out their faces because of certain things, because of how people react. I go back quite often, I'm not blocking out my face. People have to understand that it is, it is I recommend Starhopper looks into certain things. It can be, I understand his feeling. Palestinians do the same thing under every Israeli video. They say, go back to Europe. It's not real instead of Israel. We've seen it all, stuff like that. Some people are taking actual risks in this. Will anything come of it? Who knows? But us discussing it, us talking for the benefit of both of our peoples as well, so we can't be accused of anything, in my opinion, can only put good feelings out there and we'll work it out from there. Yeah. Amen, guys. It's been a great pleasure. Until next time, to everyone Thank viewing, you. wherever you are around the world, with love from Tel Aviv. Until next time, friends.